In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. My guest today joins me in this two-part series. Dr. Scylla Elworthy founded Peace Direct in 2002 to fund, promote, and learn from peace builders in conflict areas. She was subsequently awarded Best New Charity at the Charity Awards in 2005. She also founded the Oxford Research Group in 1982 to develop effective dialogue between nuclear weapons policymakers worldwide and their critics. It's for this work that she was awarded the Nuano Peace Prize in 2003 and nominated three times for the Nobel Peace Prize. She helped found the Market Theatre in South Africa in 1976, long before it was legal for multiracial performances to take place, and has since worked with playwrights and directors, including David Edgar and Max Stafford Clark, to engage the public in political theatre. From 2005, she was advisor to Sir Richard Branson, Peter Gabriel, and Archbishop Desmond Tutu in setting up the Elders' Initiative. Later, in 2007, she was appointed a member of the World Future Council and the International Task Force on Preventative Diplomacy. She's designed the leadership course in conflict transformation for the said business school at the University of Oxford and is also co-founder of The Pilgrimage, a 24-hour intensive course that enables participants to make major shifts in consciousness and perception. She's Director of Programs for the World Peace Partnership, a five-year program underlying the World Peace Festival series, the first of which will take place on the 26th of August, 2011. Dr. Scylla Elworthy. Welcome back to In Discussion and this second program with Dr. Scylla Elworthy. Scylla Elworthy, welcome back again. It's such a pleasure. And for me too. We completed the first program on a fascinating area. I'd just like to continue before we talk about the Oxford Research Group. We talked about the role of women in society, in culture. Could we develop that a bit further? We were talking about or moving towards Mother Earth, Gaia, and that importance now, the goddess bringing together the female and the male. What are your further thoughts on that following your many experiences? On a practical level, uh, my observation is that women are increasingly becoming the great local peace builders. So in areas of hot conflict all over the planet, you find women organizing either to prevent violence or to heal the trauma of violence so that the cycle of violence doesn't go round again. 
By this I mean, for example, Ashima Cole working in Kashmir to bring together the widows of Indian and Pakistani soldiers who are now destitute as widows and getting them together to generate income uh, mutually and thereby build bridges across their very divided community. That's just one example of literally hundreds over the planet. So that's on that level. On a more universal level, there's the re-emergence of uh, figures like Kuan Yin, the great uh, Chinese goddess of compassion, who is making a comeback in China. And I'm thrilled to hear this, that she's being welcomed back into homes, billions of homes all over that, that vast country. Um, because if the Chinese are taking up Taoism again, which appears to be the case, and all the ancient wisdom that has informed their culture for so long, this bodes so well for the future of the whole planet. Because as you know, Taoism and the belief uh, systems around Kuan Yin as the goddess of compassion all mean that greater, mean greater respect for the earth, greater balance between yin and yang, as in the yin-yang symbol, and greater ability to take wise decisions on a long-term basis instead of the short-term uh, decisions that we're used to. Having taken those thoughts, that experience, which clearly was very profound, very deep, and of course, I'm sure partly as a healing process for yourself. How did the Oxford Research Group come about? It was quite a leap of faith, I would imagine, to be able to create something like that. What were the aspects that were taken into, embedded into this organization? Well, it all started in New York in 1982. There was a massive demonstration in the streets of New York at the time of the United Nations second special session on disarmament. And I was there in my capacity uh, as a lobbyist for British non-governmental organizations working in the UN. And I thought I'd go down to this demonstration. It was vast and peaceful. And I was quite convinced that this would have an enormous effect on the stalled UN conference that had been going on for a week. And so I rushed back into the UN building on the Monday morning, uh, reading the New York Times, which had given the demonstration five pages, to find that not one country had changed its position one iota as a result of this vast demonstration. So I was very perplexed and I was um, really troubled. And I was strap hanging on a tram on Broadway and suddenly I got one of those flashes and what I realized was since shouting in the street didn't seem to do it in this case, sometimes it does, what if we could find out who actually did make decisions on nuclear weapons worldwide and enter a dialogue with them so that the huge emotions of people in the streets could be channeled directly and personally and peacefully 
to the people who actually had the power of yes or no over nuclear weapons. So I chucked up what I was doing, came home and set up a research group literally around my kitchen table with my savings. And that grew into the Oxford Research Group, which uh, it took us four years to publish our first book. We've published over 50 now. And that first book set out exactly how nuclear weapons decisions are made worldwide, including China, and who makes them. And from that group dialogue with these policymakers, it took ages to gain their confidence. And in fact, we were able eventually to gather, for example, the heads of the nuclear weapons labs from Los Alamos in the States to meet their counterparts from Russia, China, France, and Britain, uh, as well as their critics. That was the key part, that we would invite always the informed critics of these decisions so that there was a, a real informed dialogue. And what we found was that we had to create a very secure, what you might call a container for these discussions. So we had to create a safe place. They were held in an 13th century manor house outside Oxford and we did our best to make an environment where people could learn to drop their masks and begin to have a proper personal conversation and that was a skill that we had to develop and we made lots of mistakes and we had to develop it eventually over about 20 years. A great synchronicity with that period if you look at Gorbachev, Reagan, and you look really the the end of the Cold War of 1988, that synchronicity, how did that period, how did that history at the time write itself into what you were doing? It's always easy to try and make this assessment looking back on it, but was it very apparent that the road that you were taking had parity with the wider scope of what these amazing men were achieving? Yeah, well, I was talking to Gorbachev at the same time. And we took a huge delegation of women leaders from East and West Europe to NATO long before the war came down. And they were the first Eastern European leaders to set foot in NATO. With the exception of Mrs. Thatcher, they were some of the first women to set foot in NATO and have discussions with the military leaders there. So, yeah, we were always constantly talking to both sides, to all sides, and a lot of it was done through the energy of women. Very, very senior women, like Margarita Papandreou, the First Lady of Greece, um, the Speaker of the Bulgarian Parliament, leaders from all the countries of Europe, and some from the United States as well. I did place in the notes with you a brief discussion on your publication Making Terrorism History. I would love to gain your perspective now on the vision and mandates not only of the Oxford Research Group but many other as to how they need to adapt to some very changing conditions today with the turmoil that we see in the Middle East. How are they adapting to that? How do you believe they are approaching that? What is their view? Well, I think that what we were advocating in our, in our book, Making Terrorism History, uh, is 
coming about now. Uh, it is that there is um, a rising tide of assertiveness, particularly amongst well-educated young people all over the Middle East who refuse to accept uh, oppression anymore and they don't want to live under governments with unjust laws and human rights violation. I know the Middle East fairly well now, having been there 30 times at least, and I do not believe that this is a revolution inspired by Islamism, uh, Islamist thought. I um, believe from everything that I can hear that this is a revolution that's coming about from the bottom up and largely non-violently. Now, that doesn't happen by accident. People have to be trained to use non-violence the way that, that, that it's been used, for example, in Cairo. And if you trace that back, uh, as we have done, you see its roots, funnily enough, um, in an elderly uh, professor in Boston by the name of Jean Sharp, whose uh, writings on non-violent um, action uh, were taught to many of the people in the Velvet Revolution in Eastern Europe and have spread from there now to the Middle East. So what we're seeing, I think, is part of something very positive. Uh, it's desperate what's happening in Libya tonight as we're speaking because Gaddafi has made a huge mistake in uh, using such horrific violence against his own people and this will go down in history as a huge blunder as with all implosions of a country or a civilization there is always chaos as in the late 40s when india gained its independence that's part of the course i think that you have this chaos and you have this bloodshed it's more as you say looking at the longer term figuring out how that society becomes what is the foundation for that society it is somewhat questionable in economic terms in what could be behind this as to which way that governance turns do you nevertheless see it as a positive move in all respects whether it's in a political arena religious perspective do you see all of those having synchronicity where they will either be completely replaced by a different paradigm or in some way be shaped into something that simply adapts what is current today i think that the military particularly in egypt obviously wants to hold on to power but I think there's an enormous amount of negotiation going on between what are, in effect, the leaders of vast numbers of educated young Egyptians um, who have shown the power that they've got and have a lot of leverage with the military, as does the United States military, obviously, through its relationships. We can't predict how it will play out, but... I see it as, in the bigger picture, as a shifting more of 
tectonic plates of societal organization where these vast proportions of younger people in the populations in the Middle East growing up desperate to improve their conditions and not prepared to accept any kind of governance that doesn't enable them to improve their living conditions. They've got an enormous advantage of numbers on their side and the fact that the world is watching every move, which didn't obtain even in the revolutions in Eastern Europe. Now, there's something about the social media that definitely changes the narrative of this, however that is created, but it is social media that changes this and makes it very different to any other type of upheaval that we've ever seen. Exactly. I wanted to cover briefly your doctorate in political science at Bradford University in 93 and then talk to you about what you felt in 2003 following that being the recipient of the Peace Prize. How was that for you at that stage? What sort of inspirational value and service did that provide you at that time? Well, I, d I did the PhD because, uh, frankly, I, I was spending a lot of my time as the only woman in a room full of 100 men in the defense sectors and uh, military contractors, policymakers, 99% of whom were male. And I needed... Um, I needed a doctorate to, to have more authority, uh, and it certainly served that purpose. And I was glad to do it because I'm, I'm a Gemini, and I love ideas and thinking, and um, so I, I really enjoyed doing my doctorate, and really bringing together a lot of the things I'd been thinking about in the previous 10 years. When it came to the Peace Prize, that was nice, going to going to Tokyo and to Kyoto to receive it. And the Japanese are so wonderfully ceremonial. And it was very nice to be appreciated. And also the cash came in very handy. I gave half of it, as I remember, to Oxford Research Group and half of it to the new organization that I had just started, which was called Peace Direct. And that enabled Peace Direct to get off the ground much more quickly. Was Peace Direct a vehicle such that you had to focus completely on it or could you still provide your time to the Oxford Research Group? What was that transition like for you? Oh David, you do ask nice questions um, because you sort of get inside what life was like. I was um, determined to hand over Oxford Research Group and I was lucky enough to put it into the very good hands of a professor, John Sloboda, and he has run it most beautifully and very sensitively and robustly, I would say, since then. And uh, for a while I stayed on as chair and then I stayed on the board for a while and gradually withdrew as I realized it was in good hands. With Peace Direct, I've been able to do exactly the same thing. Uh, in fact, I'm still on the board. 
but I've left the running of it in the excellent hands of Carolyn Heyman, and it has grown phenomenally under her leadership, so I'm enormously proud of it. What Peace Direct does is to identify locally-led peace-building initiatives in conflict areas all over the world, from Colombia right through to the Congo and Kashmir. We're operating now, I think, in 19 different uh, conflict areas worldwide. And what we do is to see who is doing really good, effective work locally in preventing or resolving conflict, and to ask them what they need and help to provide it. Because we firmly believe that local people know best and indeed that has proved to be the case. So we're thrilled that we've just come out top in a worldwide survey where partners in the South were asked which of the established worldwide NGOs they most found it valuable to work with, um, and Peace Direct was their first choice. So we're pleased about that because we've always based our work on the um, knowledge that local people know what they need and they know what works and we trust them. Has there been any consideration towards supporting Haiti given the terrible circumstances on that island? Is that something that they have ever looked at or is it too far away from the major areas? You are clearly situated in Africa. Haiti ever been seen as teaching any lessons, any ideas that have come out of Haiti's terrible circumstances? Oh yes, indeed. We're not active there, partly because there are an absolute plethora of US uh, non-governmental organizations active in Haiti. In fact, many people say there's almost too many civil society organizations falling over each other to help. We regard it more as a humanitarian crisis rather than a a conflict crisis. So we prefer to be active in areas like Colombia, nearer to home with you, Nicaragua, Honduras, where there's outright conflict. And then not only in Africa, but also uh, in India, Sri Lanka, and further east, Timor, and so forth. I would like to cover briefly the collaboration that Peace Direct has with the media. The media is in a difficult period at the moment, particularly in the USA. How has Peace Direct found a collaborative effort to engage the media in a presentation of accurate information that really does pursue the merits and the missions of Peace Direct itself? Well, actually, I don't think we've been at all successful with the media. I think we haven't found yet the right way to engage what is in the UK a pretty cynical media in general. We haven't found the right method to enable them to get really interested in these stories of what we call unarmed heroes, the people that we support in conflict areas. I think things are changing quite fast because I think the recent experience of close media examination of the revolution in Egypt showed 
the media that they couldn't really hold on to their cynicism. What was happening, I don't know how it was reported in the States, but here are the on-the-ground BBC correspondents were blown away by the uh, spontaneity and the powerful integrity of the demonstrators. And what's very important in contrast with that is the fact that in Libya, where no foreign correspondents are allowed by Gaddafi, he has, with impunity, been able to bomb and shoot his own people uh, because the media weren't there to see and report and it couldn't fly around the world in pictures the way it did from Egypt. So I think that what we're witnessing is a bit of a sea change and the media perhaps realizing their responsible role in assisting with the accurate and unbiased flow of, of information. I'd like to move on from there to 2005, to your advisory work with the elders, particularly with Richard Branson, Desmond Tutu and Peter Gabriel. The elders has developed into a quite extraordinary organization. What was your participation in that initial period and what did you learn from it? Well, Peter Gabriel had the original idea to assemble a group of the world's wisest and most experienced statesmen and women, generally the, the world's best elders. And he took the idea to Richard Branson and the two of them took it to Nelson Mandela who said, fine, good idea, go away and make it work. And they tried to do that for about a year and couldn't work, it, work out how to do it. And so I got a phone call one day, can you come along and, and help? And that was a, a fascinating challenge. Basically, what we needed to do was to assemble um, these very, very wise people representing all parts of the world and all sorts of different backgrounds and to enable them to um, begin to work together and they chose to work on issues of conflict. They've been active in Cyprus, in the Middle East, uh, in Zimbabwe, and in Sudan. And the uh, point about the elders is, given their longevity and the vastness of their experience, they're able to take the long view and to give guidance to the world based on their perspective uh, seen from their extraordinary position of experience. I was very interested and maybe there's a correlation here in Peter Gabriel's witness program having just talked about the media being unable to cover conflicts such as Libya or perhaps being able as certainly is present in the US at the moment, unable to really cover any stories because of conflict of interest with sponsorship or endorsements of, of their companies. There seems to be though a synergy between Peter's witness program and that very issue. It seems that Peter was almost ahead of the game in seeing events such as Libya approach 
and his witness program is certainly allowing people to photograph, write about it, broadcast about it in that program. Is that something that he would talk to you about and that you were aware of? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, Peter's one of the great pace setters in this area. You can imagine, you know, he was, Witness was putting um, mini cameras in the hands of women in Afghanistan and Pakistan who held them under their burqas and shot pictures through the kind of grill pocket, um, lacy pockets of the burqas of women being beaten up in the street and all kinds of human rights abuses. No, it's been extraordinary what the organization Witness has done and greatly to be applauded. And as you say, it was a precursor, a herald, if you like, of what was going to be needed and what, what in fact made possible the revolutions that we're now seeing. We arrive at the current work and the World Future Council, as it seems, plays into your journey very well, where it focuses on sustainability. And I had placed in our notes a favorite phrase, human accord. I did wish to receive a definition, however, of preventative diplomacy that is well used at the World Future Council. Is that an important part of its mandate? And what would you say is the definition of that preventative diplomacy? Well, the mission of the World Future Council, again, to assemble knowledgeable people, there are 50 of us as councillors, representing all kinds of disciplines, whether it's science, ecology, um, sociology, government, defence, security, and so forth. And what the World Future Council tries to do is to look forward and alert people to what is coming down the pike and how disasters can be prevented. Therefore, a great focus has been on climate change, on the state of the oceans. And now, what I think is the most exciting part of our work is around future justice. Here we're talking about what we call crimes against future generations and setting in motion an eventual criminal procedure to prosecute any corporate or any individual who threatens the lives of unborn children and future generations by either polluting or by infecting people or by altering future genes in ways that uh, threaten health in the future. So we're actually on the path to being able to secure a procedure whereby uh, prosecutions can be made now against those who are threatening the future of our children. And that to me is very exciting. Interestingly, given the great controversy emerging around the world about genetic seeds and of course Monsanto, where would the World Future Council sit in that regard? Certainly here in the States there is building very quickly a massive opposition to the expansion of generic seeds. 
Oh, I'm glad to hear it. Uh, because all the big companies that are promoting these seeds worldwide are American. And Monsanto is not the only one. The biggest campaigner against these kind of seeds in India is Vandana Shiva. And she's one of the World Future Councillors, one of my fellow councillors. So she's probably the person who is best informed and the, the most notable worldwide campaigner on this. So I'm delighted to hear that at last some opposition to it in America is building. Do they also look at the great concerns, particularly in light of the Deepwater Horizon disaster last year, of the oil companies and the continual raping of Mother Earth, particularly in the Andes and the Amazon? Is that something that they are concerned about and focused on? Absolutely. And that will fit into, we have annual awards for the, the worst policies on the environment and the best policies on the environment. And so that would absolutely fit into that category. It's a interesting journey that we've taken. And we move into the final part of the program here and, of course, the World Peace Festival. But before we reach that, it appears to me that with these incredible organizations that you have been a part of, a pivotal part of in creating their foundations, that it's almost in your life a step building process. It almost seems like you are earlier, you have a child and you progress with these organizations and you can see them growing and growing and it's almost as if you're taking all of their attributes, seeing them grow, seeing them nurture and mature, and building further organizations, multiplying them. Is that how you could possibly look at the way that you've shaped this and your life thus far? <laughs> it's lovely to hear you describe it like that. I never thought of it like that before, but it sounds very nice. and. Um, I suppose to an extent that is true, yes. I'm a person who loves starting things and I'm lucky enough often to find people who are willing to take them over and keep running them. I did run the Oxford Research Group for 25 years but I do know that I'm a better initiator. So it, it's, it's lovely to see these alumni, as it were, growing up and... Um, the, the World Peace Festival that you just mentioned uh, is the one that I'm involved in right up to my neck and over my head at the moment, getting ready for the big festival that's going to happen at the end of August in Berlin. And just today, I was custom building 85 personal invitations to world leaders in different disciplines to come and speak at the conferences that will accompany it is part of the new governance i would suggest all of these organizations i'm sure that i have inherited this and learned this from the wonderful barbara marks hubbard she talks about this evolutionary stage that we are traveling through the rebirth and it seems that these organizations that you've been involved in and are involved in are very much part of that new governance 
that is not necessarily deeming to replace the United Nations or the WHO or governments, but certainly become a much more pivotal part in the decision-making process? I think that's part of what's happening, yes. My impression is that this shift that we're working through involves people wanting to live under something more imaginative than an old-fashioned government, uh, national government. People aren't so interested anymore in what nationality they are. They've got more in common with their peers across the world who have the same values as they do. So I think we're seeing a, um, a shift that's not yet totally clear. But one of the things that is coming to the fore is people's awareness and alertness. It's a, it's a change in consciousness that's taking place, I think. And my impression is that, assuming there is a much greater intelligence than ours that's at work, we're being given these challenges, the challenge, for example, of climate change, to almost oblige us to wake up to become alert and aware and to stop thinking of ourselves as the center of the universe and start thinking of ourselves as part of a very much larger whole. And I think that's immensely exciting. I had placed in the notes consciousness and conflict transformation. They both have an extremely important part to play in context. I really desired to talk about the model, the pilgrimage, and the steps that have to be taken in that shift of mind consciousness. Also, the cellular change in human beings, which I expanded upon, of course, in the notes for the next bridge program. It is very important, is it not, for people to understand this direct connection, as you stated, between Mother Earth its waves and vibrations, its secret values that we should hold on to very dearly in protecting it. How does that work in with what you're accomplishing now, not only at the World Peace Festival, but with many of your projects? Oh, in every way. I mean, from the very personal everyday, I go out for walk. I live in a very beautiful part of Middle England and it's very ancient countryside with huge oak trees and beech trees and I go for long walks every day and if I didn't I would be missing half my strength. It's enormously energy giving and soothing at the same time. So that connects up with the fact that the protection of Mother Earth is so essential to our future and that means switching from exploiting and plundering Mother Earth for all we're worth and turning her insides into dollars making money out of her we've got to completely reverse that attitude to one of taking care of her because otherwise she will simply shrug her shoulders and we won't be here anymore and so if we want to continue the incredible joy of living in this beautiful place, we have to protect it, just as you would protect and take care of your home. And to me, that's everything really at the moment. And it informs everything I try to do. 
you mentioned the pilgrimage. Well, that's a 24-hour intensive program that I designed with my colleague Nicholas Yanni. And um, we offer it to very large corporations, sometimes very large defense contracting corporations send their most senior people. Um, we put them through a very intense 24-hour program where they stay awake for 24 hours and they go through really an immersion process of looking at their own lives and the meaning of their lives and how they can relate to their surroundings and the planet in a, in a more conscious way. If we look at these days of our lives, we look at the turmoil in the world and yet we can look forward with great inspiration. What are your deepest reflections of your universe and that journey that you've taken so far and then looking forward to the future, translating that into the possibilities that you and all of us have, given that the world may go through severe changes? Mm, well, it's for me personally, it's definitely been a path. And I've often veered off my true path. And I think what I've learned is it's necessary every day to spend some time in quietness, really trying to listen to what the next step on the path is, at least to know where one is on the path. It's a bit like learning to read a map. One has to listen to something vastly more intelligent than, certainly than I am myself. So that's become a necessity and, and a great privilege and a joy. For a message looking forward and how people can perhaps make their own way towards their own inner peace or inner self, I, I feel that the same thing is true really. To just take the time every day, maybe, maybe five minutes, four times a day, to simply quiet down and slow the breathing, deepen the breathing, and reflect and listen. And at first it seems sort of something that you ought to do, but it becomes very quickly a nourishment, a natural uh, resource that you can have that costs absolutely nothing and rewards and strengthens us it strengthens the immune system um, and it strengthens, gives us inspiration. It enlarges our vision and it makes us more able as well as more compassionate. So I don't think there's anything more valuable than that, really, David. What do you think? Certainly it is important for people to find their inner selves more today than ever before to find the universe in themselves, find happiness in themselves, and to shed all of those human frailties that we suffer from, the codependence and the ego and the fear, the addictions. And somehow I think, Scylla, that that is going to take place essentially in the world that we're 
moving into. Everything indicates that. There is a huge movement and although it may seem as a chaos today, I truly believe that it's going to lead to a far better world that is much less complicated. Well, I'm sure your programs will do a lot to hasten that, David, because you're somebody who really takes care of another person and you've got a breadth of experience and understanding yourself that you bring to this. So it seems to me to be a very, very valuable contribution. Dr. Celia Elworthy, it has been such a huge privilege to share this time with you. I'm sure that we will be able to talk about your life and career further as life progresses in the future. And of course, it's going to be wonderful to have your participation on the panel in the Bridge programs. I do thank you so very much. Well, I've had a smile on my face for the last hour, which has been a pleasure talking to you. It's lovely to be smiling consistently for an hour. And thank you very much. And to our listeners today, I do hope that you enjoyed this series of two programs with Dr. Scylla Elworthy. You can gain information on these and any other programs in the series at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this wonderful world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in Discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com.